It's Monday, August 24th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. With the Democratic National Convention behind us, it's time for President Trump and Republicans to make their case to voters for the November election. The Democrats just wrapped up their virtual convention with strong messages from Joe Biden and former President Obama about the importance of getting out to vote and remove Donald Trump. With few technical glitches and a surprisingly fun roll call vote, the Democrats did have a successful convention. This week, President Trump will accept his party's nomination from the South Lawn of the White House, but he will be present in some form or another for all four days of the convention. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for the dueling conventions. Next, at the Penn Vet Working Dog Center, canine studies are being done to see if man's best friend can sniff out coronavirus. So far, they are doing a pretty good job of it. Nine dogs are currently enrolled in the study with the hopes that one day they might be able to pick out infected individuals, including those that are asymptomatic in nursing homes, businesses, and airports. Dogs have already been proven to detect explosives and some diseases such as hidden cancers, diabetes, and bacterial and viral infections. Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. For close to four years now, he has shown no interest in putting in the work. No interest in finding common ground. No interest in using the awesome power of his office to help anyone but himself and his friends. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Wanted to bring you on to do a recap of the Democratic National Convention and a look forward at the Republican National Convention. We're right in the middle of everything. Uh, we're firmly into the general election now. These things, t- uh, you know, are, are the kickoff points basically for that. So let's start with the DNC. Did it serve its purpose? Uh, you know, it was a virtual convention. There was a lot of questions on how it was going to play out, how it was going to look. Was it successful? You know, there was a lot of thought, as you just suggested, that uh, it was going to look like a really lame Zoom meeting with, you know, just some screen faces on screens. And the compliments really rolled in. The the Democrats were able to stage an event that didn't look like a Zoom meeting. They, They credit Hollywood producers that came in and really organized the event. And tried to keep it moving. I would say as someone who watched all four nights, the pacing was really fast. There weren't really the technical glitches people worried about. They were broadcasting um, most nights from 9, 10, 15 locations over the course of the night. But it didn't feel like we were hopping between FaceTime videos. And so their their production quality was highly praised. And then from the messaging standpoint, we saw a very scripted message. We saw a message that was very controlled. There were no surprises. It really highlighted what we understand to be Biden's whole campaign strategy, which is reaching out to moderates, to being an unabashed centrist and presenting a message that was clearly trying to court Republicans and independent moderates uh, in the fall election. Overall, there was really only a few technical glitches, just, you know, small audio things, uh, a few awkward pauses while somebody was getting their cue. So overall, I thought that part was successful as well. One of the shining moments, I thought, was the roll call vote. Ginger, you and I have been covering conventions for some time, and it's always done in the convention hall. You know, everybody's just, you know, 
big hats is what I'm thinking of, you know, people standing <laughs> out. But uh, the roll call vote, the way they did it this time, they filmed it in all 57 states and territories. Uh, you really got to see everybody. I think, uh, was it R- Rhode Island, the Calamari comeback state? You know, it was full with a lot of personality, really. It was maybe one of the unexpected highlights of the whole convention, having your right covered so many. The roll call is when you like get up and go get something to eat. Uh, <laughs> it's when you go to the bathroom. I had planned to do the same thing, and then I was stuck in front of my television. It was very well staged. Uh, I think anyone watching it also might have been surprised to know 10 of them were done live. So they weren't even all pre-taped. And I think that shows you the production quality that went into that um, and sort of adapting to the moment. It was like a slightly political television tourism advertisement uh, <laughs> it, it for was. each of the states. But it was fun to watch. And like I said, just watching different locations and their kind of personalities coming through, just uh, it was a lot of fun to actually go through, like I said, when it usually is not. Okay, so how about some of the big moments as far as speeches go? I know a lot of people, um, uh, Michelle Obama obviously did great. Jill Biden did great. President Obama himself They made a big deal of it because he was a former president criticizing the sitting president. Which isn't that unusual once we get into election season. We've seen former presidents campaign for their parties before. He was a little more aggressive than previous presidents have been in giving such sort of biting criticism. I think the critics saw President Obama's speech as being one that was essentially imploring people to show up and vote against Donald Trump. You know, there was a lot of praise for his speech and Michelle Obama's speech. It felt a little bit like mom and dad were saying they're not mad at you, but they're disappointed and they need you to get up and vote. I think it was really sort of a uh, an indictment of President Trump and what they think are his failings, but at the same time trying to speak to people to get them to do something about it. It wasn't just criticizing the president. Yeah, the get out the vote message was prevalent throughout the entire thing. Every major speaker basically said, get out there and vote early, get your mail-in ballots and send them back right away. Uh, I mean, that was a a big overall message there. And and then finally, for the DNC, at least, Kamala and Joe Biden, how were their, how did their speeches go? You know, Joe Biden uh, obviously has a lot of gaffes about him. Sometimes Uh, there's Donald Trump has said, Hey, his uh, cognitive uh, decline is happening with him. How did he fare? and, And how did Kamala fare? You know, I've been covering Joe Biden for over a decade since he was the senator from Delaware, and I worked at the local newspaper there. And that's probably one of, if not the best speech I've ever seen him give. Um, it, from a technical standpoint, it was it was exactly what he needed. Um, and I think you, you pointed to President Trump kept suggesting that Donald Trump has dementia or that he's not all there. He kept saying in the last few weeks he didn't think Joe Biden was going to finish the speech, that he wasn't going to be able to get through it. Um, President Trump set a very low bar and Joe Biden more than exceeded it. Um, We'll see what what lessons the president takes away in trying to set a bar ahead of the debates. Uh, But I would say he his speech was very well received. And then Kamala Harris speech as well. I mean, she had to go after what uh, may be one of the greatest orators of a generation and speaking after President Obama. Uh, But she did everything she needed to do, telling her story talking to women um, and and there was there was not flaws there were not gaps we did not have moments in this debate in this in this convention where people were going oh no I can't believe they did that uh, for the most part so it was pretty pretty technically uh, executed the whole week and now on to the Republican convention which will run through uh, Monday through Thursday 
this is their chance to rebut everything that happened at the DNC. The president is going to accept the nomination from the South Lawn of the White House. Uh, and they also said he's going to be taking part in all four nights uh, in some form or, or another. That's right. So this is also going to be highly unconventional. Normally we see the nominee or the president sort of nod or wave or, or make silent appearances throughout the week, um, come out on the night their spouses speak and, and give them a, a, a hug and a kiss. Not this year. This year we're going to see President Trump likely say something every night. Um, they're going to do it much different than we've seen the Democratic convention. Um, theirs is going to feel a lot more like a convention with speakers all in the same room, with people in the room, with crowds at events as much as they could have them. Um, so it's going to look perhaps a little bit more like a more sparsely attended convention, but much more like a convention than what we saw um, these last few days. They're going to start with the roll call on Monday morning. That will be the first thing that they do. It will be uh, in person. So they will actually all be in the room in Charlotte. It will, it will look like the convention roll calls that we know where uh, each delegation takes the microphone. So very different production uh, that we're going to be seeing. And, and it'll be interesting to see how they, they land theirs compared uh, to the Democrats and compared to conventions past. Right. And they've said that the president will be there for that roll call vote. They're going to have 336 delegates there because of social distancing. They can't have everybody. So that one will be an interesting, uh, just to contrast the way the DNC did theirs. What about speakers? Because I, I'm looking at the, the list. I've seen a lot of family members um, from, from President Trump. There's obviously, you know, the usuals. Mike Pompeo is going to be there, Senator Rand Paul. Um, but it, it seems like it's a, a lot of family members speaking again. They, they, but they've always been at these conventions with him. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I saw someone put it, these are not Republican conventions, these are Donald Trump conventions. And we see the Trump family, we see people talking about the Trump family, we see people talking about Trump. I think, you know, last week was very much about Trump and this week is going to very much be about Trump. And that probably sums up the election. It's all about <laughs> Donald Trump. Right. Um, we are going to see uh, the couple, the McCloskeys, who uh, stood outside of their Missouri home with a gun when the Black Lives Matter protesters came by. Right. Uh, we're we're going to see um, some more, I, I suspect, slightly controversial speakers, uh, co members of Congress who have been uh, a bit controversial. Um, and, and it's going to be a Donald Trump rally. I mean, it's going to be four days of talking about the things that he wants to be talking about. And and as lots have noted, this is his production. He's been heavily involved in the planning. Uh, his campaign took over after they canceled most of the Charlotte uh, portion. And so uh, they're really going to be driving that message and their speakers are going to be the ones that he's handpicked yeah I, i've been reading a, a few reports on this and you know people are saying you know the goal of this is to make it a, a gripping tv show which is something obviously we know the president does well with his his past and all so this is kind of what to look for and what to expect there and um the president said he wants to have an optimistic and upbeat convention to contrast what the democrats are doing uh, and they're going to be focusing a lot on his promises promises that he's made and that he's kept uh you know, we know there's a lot of things he said that he hasn't done as well, but uh, he does have a lot of things under his belt. He made a huge impact on immigration. I mean, he basically shut down the asylum system, you know, uh, on health care, not much. They uh, repealed the individual mandate of Obamacare, but they didn't replace it with anything. And the economy uh, with uh, coronavirus looming over everything has just tanked, but it was doing okay before. So <laughs> there's a lot of things to go through and a lot of reframing that they're going to have to do through the convention. 
Yeah, they're going to be talking about where they see his accomplishments. And, you know, on the economy, they believe that they can make the case that what he did for the economy in the first three years of his time in office, he can repeat in the recovery post-COVID. And they're going to be making that case. Um, It's hard to imagine that it's much more optimistic or upbeat, given the way that we, then the tone that the president takes on a regular basis when he's speaking publicly. Um, He's not always optimistic. In fact, he's not often optimistic at all. Um, So I'd be surprised if we see a real optimistic tone. In fact, you know, one of the things that has been a struggle with President Trump and his campaign is a campaign that very much wants him to talk about his accomplishments, as you just listed. And he very much wants to talk about his opponents. Um, And I would expect to see that tension play out this week as well. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And of course, all week we will have coverage on NBCNews.com where we'll be live blogging and and bringing all the latest news every night. The way they do this is to take, in this case, a deactivated form of the virus. If they were doing an explosive, they would take the explosive and have the dog sniff it and reward them at the beginning for recognizing that smell. Joining us now is Francis Steed Sellers senior writer at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Francis. I'm delighted to be with you. I always love a good dog story, so your article caught my eye. And right now there's a study going on that's uh, actually teaching dogs to see if they can detect the novel coronavirus. Obviously, we know that dogs have very enhanced olfactory senses. They can smell a lot of things already. We know a bomb-sniffing dogs, they can smell explosives, they can already smell other diseases, things like cancers and and whatnot. So right now they're being trained, there's a a group of them being trained to sniff out the COVID-19. So Francis, tell us a little bit about this. So this is a study being done by uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Working Dog Center. They're based in Philadelphia, and there are a couple of other very good studies being done around the world, one specifically at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. As you mentioned, dogs are very good at smelling. We know that. These dogs are being trained by the people who also work with special ops dogs, dogs that will do very high-level scent work with explosives and things. So we know that many diseases do create a smell. If you think about people who have diabetes, they're known to have a fruity smelling urine. When people get sick, their breath often changes, and these can be signs of illness. So the question these researchers want to know is, is there a distinct smell attached to this new disease, the coronavirus, that produces COVID-19 in humans and has been causing such disaster around the world? And that's the work they're doing, using the same sorts of equipment they would use to teach dogs to detect explosives. The way they do this is to take, in this case, a deactivated form of the virus. If they were doing an explosive, they would take the explosive and have the dog sniff it and reward them at the beginning for recognizing that smell. Then they put the smell on what's called a scent wheel, among many other tempting smells. And the dogs learn to recognize and get rewarded for recognizing the appropriate smell. After that, you can go out and test and see if the dog can recognize that smell among many, many other smells. And that's what I was witnessing in a place called Greencastle, Pennsylvania, at a dog training center a couple of months ago. This uh, program has been going on for like about 10 weeks or so now, and they're finding out that some of the dogs are actually really accurate in predicting this. And they're hoping that if they can uh, detect that scent and really hone in on that, they could even find people who might be asymptomatic and have COVID-19. So what I was saying was sort of early on in this research, and the dog's accuracy was stunning. They were testing for deactivated urine. This was urine that had come from 
positive patients at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital. And was once it was deactivated, was put into these cans that the dogs were circling and looking for. And they were very, very accurate. They can go from there to test other things like saliva, also sebum or sweat. So sebum is the, the sort of sticky substance that's exuded on people's backs and will show up on T-shirts. They're going to ask people to wear T-shirts, people who've recently been tested, and then to return them and see if the dogs can recognize the smell on people's T-shirts. If that's true, and that these early results look very promising, there is the possibility that dogs could one day be deployed in airports. Now, there actually is this week news of a test that's a little simpler than this. It's actually taking samples of T-shirts, and this happened after my article was published, but taking samples of T-shirts in Dubai airport, and dogs are being asked to look at those samples. And we haven't yet heard the results of those tests, whether they're accurate. But you can see there's a huge possibility here, also a huge possibility for using dogs in the first stage of developing electronic noses, which could be less invasive and can work 24-7 instead of the short day that a dog has to work. And these are kind of breathalyzer-type noses, the same things that are used in the perfuming industry. There are some doubts about using dogs in this sense to sniff out people with COVID-19. I guess some of the detractors say there's problems with scaling it up things like that. But the accuracy could be there, but just to, the time that it takes to train the dogs might not be. The time yeah. and expense and the accuracy is, is, seems as if it's very good at the moment, but the time and expense and then safety issues, of course, for handlers and dogs who could be deployed in airports. We know it's a zoonotic disease, a disease that came from animals, and also this disease has moved into the animal population. So all those issues are extremely important in moving ahead with potentially deploying dogs, which is one of the reasons why an electronic nose could be so much more efficient and safe going ahead. What are the dog breeds that are being used in this particular study right now? The one I saw was eight Labradors and one Belgian Malinois. The Belgian Malinois was a dog that had a little bit more experience with other smells beforehand. In London, they're using Spaniels, I believe, and some Labradors. And there's a French study, the study that's a sample T-shirt, and that's using Belgian Malinois. I asked about the dogs because the dog that's most famous for its nose, of course, is a bloodhound. And I said, why don't you use a bloodhound? And the trainability factor with a Labrador that wants so much to please or another working dog like a Spaniel makes them very, very inviting for these trainers. You know, what, which dog do you turn to if you want to have an easy dog to work with? And they, these tend to be typical working dog breeds like Spaniels and uh, Labradors. I'm a dog lover myself, so I just always uh, geek out at these types of stories and just kind of the endless possibilities that we can uh, use these animals for. And so this is just another great one. So in the end of this whole thing, though, they're not necessarily sniffing out COVID-19 itself, uh, there's these things called volatile organic compounds, and this is how the virus would break down other cells in the body. And this is really what they're smelling, what they're sniffing out for. That's what we believe. Of course, we actually don't know yet exactly what they're sniffing, and that's one of the mysteries hanging over this. And that's where the chemistry and physics will come in later in developing a, an electronic nose is narrowing down exactly which molecules people release. But we do know smells are chemicals, are molecules that are released from bodies and they change with sickness. So these volatile organic compounds, we're shedding all the time and we shed different ones when we're sick. Francis Steed Sellers, senior writer at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.